0: All right, welcome back to another episode of the Struck Podcast. Alan, what's going on this week?
1: Well, uh, Boeing's under some pressure again to get max deliveries going. It sounds like the factory's up and running, which is a good sign, but there's a lot of FAA and Department Mm -hmm. of Transportation pressure for undue pressure on the delegated uh, engineers that help sign off on the design, which uh, is just another bad thing for Boeing to be going through. So, you know... Yeah. better week in terms of flights did you notice that the number of people flying this week is up a, another couple of ticks it's not 20% up but we're in the low 30s it looks like in terms of number of flights versus last year which is a good sign and as long as that number still mm-hmm. still goes up then that's a positive sign for the world economy and the US economy and aviation overall and uh, it also looks like the the business community the number of flights on the on the business side it's still pretty stable. It's down. It's down. I thought I heard twenty to thirty percent versus last year. That means they are still in the seventy percentile range in terms of business flight, and the the lease market. Yeah, that's not bad. That's not bad. And the lease market is doing really well. Uh, the partial ownership market. Uh, I listened to a podcast this past week with Honda Jet. doing with the Honda Jet uh, lease program. From, it wasn't a Honda owned program, but it's a Honda. They're using Honda Jets to shuttle people around, and it sounds like they were doing pretty well. They're, they had five airplanes in their fleet, and they were gonna. Uh, Take delivery of another one here shortly, and they're going to add a a total of ten new ones to to get to fifteen Honda jets in their fleet. And you have to have a pretty uh, rosy economic forecast to bring Honda basically triple the size of your company, just airplane fleet. So I thought that was a a good positive sign too. So some green shoots, right?
0: Yeah, a lot going on. Green shoots. Uh, So in today's in today's episode, we're going to cover uh, what Alan just mentioned. So billing and, uh, this undue pressure idea as far as some of their delegates, which is really interesting. And, um, I know Alan has some pretty deep insight on this. We're going to, in our engineering segment, we're going to talk about Honeywell doing a bunch of stuff on the UAS and the urban air mobility side. So they've got a couple different pieces of new tech we're gonna, we're gonna chat about, and then our third segment, we're going to cover um, some vertical takeoff and landing, uh, news in the electric sector. So, uh, we'll talk a little bit about vertical aerospace and their Seraph uh, aircraft, which, uh, Honeywell is a, is a partner with uh, that new development. So interesting design. I know you've got some thoughts. So excited to get to <laughs> that later, but let's, let's start first with, with Boeing. So this is something you've had a lot of experience with being an FAA DER designated engineering representative. And uh, so you felt this pressure of, hey, we need you to sign off on this. Sure. Um, So take us down this road of of undue pressure and and what this all means.
1: So the term undue pressure in relates to delegated um, engineers or DERs or unit members or... Uh, There's different names from different places, but essentially they're engineers that have the authority to sign off on regulatory approval to say that that design complies with this particular regulation or regulations and it meets all the FAA requirements. Therefore, uh, it can be approved. That is a very high level of responsibility. Now in the real world, people who have that DER or unit member or airworthiness representative authority depends uh just just which use DER as a generic term for all this as as a DER you are also probably a person designing the system so you're one of probably a uh, several people that help them design the system which you will ultimately hopefully later approve to show that it's airworthy so you're, you're you got these as the engineers call it, this two-hat situation. My engineer hat, when I'm out there designing stuff, and I take that hat off and I put my F.A. hat on and say, yep, okay, it's either good or it's not good, and here's the reason why. Human nature is a funny thing. So if if you're working for, as a, as a DER, a lot of, of D, you know, there's two levels of DERs. I'm just trying to keep it simple. There's company DERs that are employed by a company that can only work on behalf of the company to show compliance. And then there's sort of people like me who are consultant DERs who can work for anybody. Why are there two levels there? Not really sure. I'm sure the companies had something to do with that. So if I'm working for uh, company A, I'm an engineer at company A, but I'm also a DER for company A. I'm getting paid for both jobs by Company A. Company A writes my paycheck, and I'm in a and I'm in a room or an office full of people who are my peers and my manager. I've Got to have a manager, right? Because I'm just a lowly engineer. Uh, I'm a manager. Uh, I have a, a, a manager who is, you know, roughly the same age. We all the kids probably go to the same schools. There's a there's a little community, a little clique that develops here because you're around each other all the time. And then you got this obligation of you need to get a design done to get it out the door and you should get this uh, kind of uh, yin yang thing going on with management where management has to sign off on all of this stuff at least not until recently there, there's some things about that but basically uh, management can put pressure on DERs to sign off on designs and DERs need can be able to push back and say no I, I don't want to do that because here's the reasons why so you, you automatically create this sort of combative dynamic, and there's really no way to get around that. And it takes time for any engineer to sort of build up their intestinal fortitude to say, screw off, you know, I'm not going to sign it, and here's the reasons why. If you want someone else, if if you want this sign, you have to find somebody else because it's not going to be me and it's not going to be today. But that takes time, and it takes. as an engineer, you always feel like, well, I could be walking the streets tomorrow which happens, totally happens. Not supposed to happen, but it happens. Uh, So there is always this sort of uh, combative relationship for engineers where they have to try to serve two masters, try to serve in a generic sense, to to serve the FAA and to serve their employer who's writing writing their checks. It is sort of a no-win situation. So if you get asked to do it, you better think hard about it, whether, you are up to that combative task. You know, it, there's a lot of hard decisions that have to yeah, be made.
0: People are not good at saying no. Right. That's not a that's not a position that no. most people would want to be placed in no, for sure.
1: No. And and but at the same time you feel like you are knowledgeable enough to be able to make those decisions. And the FAA thinks you're knowledgeable enough, otherwise they wouldn't have contacted you to do it. So the FAA doesn't write you a paycheck. Right. You, you're working on behalf of the FAA, but you're not an employee of the FAA. It's one of the things that make perfectly clear to you is that, you know, if company decides to let you go, see ya, you <laughs> know, you have to figure out what happens mm-hmm. tomorrow. Um, and it, it so it's common. It, it is more common than you think that there's disagreements between delegates, DERs and the companies that they work for. It's tough. And that drives into things that you're seeing lately on the Boeing 737. It's not necessarily, I mean, recently it's 737 specific where um, Boeing has a system. There's a there's a newer system set up such that it's not, it's such a, well, they have an, a, quote, unquote, an internal FAA that's sort of run by the company. Uh, it's hard to think about this way, but in previous history, uh, Boeing would go to the FAA office and actually talk to the FAA engineers, and the FAA engineers uh, would sort of be the final authority and everything. And the FAA would be constantly involved in your project and your design effort and overseeing it. Well, as the aircraft community, it's gotten larger and larger and larger. And there's a lot, of, a lot of small companies making aircraft parts and aircraft designs and The faa hasn't been funded to the point where they can cover all those things what they have done they set up these delegated organizations and these delegated organizations act on behalf of the faa they actually function like an faa so even though they're all paid by company a they they have these uh uh, structure like the faa and the faa blesses them to say all right you set up an organization which was Mm -hmm. was adequate to make sure that all the little check boxes get checked and you're doing all the stuff right so now you've got the faa a pie, you got the company having an ODA in the middle and you got the unit member or DER down at the bottom down here. So now there's a, a, a line between you and the FAA, there's a body in the middle of it. And so in, in the case of the of Boeing and in in the 737 upgrade for the MAX here, is that a lot of the certification work was actually done within the ODA. And the FAA uh, had delegated a bunch of functions for the ODA to to administer, essentially what it is. They held some things for the FAA to to sign off on, but a lot of it was done by by the, the internal Boeing ODA system. Well, when stuff goes wrong and there's crashes or incidences or accidents or anything significant, you know, it starts a lot of cross checks and looking at one another to make sure that that system is functional still which is what's happening now. And Congress has sort of stepped into it, and the Department of Transportation had an Inspector General report pop out in the last couple of days talking about the history of the 737 MAX crashes, which is interesting, and sort of tying it together with the possibility of being undue pressure on engineers. Now, it isn't come out and say, this engineer had this thing happen. None of that happened. It's, It's more of a generic statement like, while some of the engineers... Uh, thought they had undue pressure to sign off on um, particular aspects, maybe aspects that had nothing to do with the crash. That's sort of what it seems like that the the crash pathway and the, the decisions that were made. I haven't heard undue pressure being pushed in that direction. It, that, it, but it, it may be because nothing is really clear right now. It's still it's still in the fog of war. Yeah. Right. But y- you can imagine any sort of organization like that where there's going to have you can have on two different spectrums as as being a der you have just plain disgruntled der's that just are going to be upset about no matter what the company decides and then you got the other end of the spectrum which is yeah i mean a manager has threatened to fire somebody or has put undue pressure on the on this uh engineer to sign off on something and, and they realize like i gotta feed my family so yeah i'll sign off on it Not a great decision, but those are kind of like the two spectrums, right? So usually it lies somewhere in the middle of that. And with Congress stepping in it, I'm not sure that's ever a great answer. The Department of Transportation, uh, obviously, has oversight over the FAA. So the Department of Transportation constantly audits the FAA and provides recommendation. It'd be like uh, uh, the superintendent of your school overseeing the teacher of your class. (laughs) Sort of like that. Yeah. Yeah. And that just leads to really com- conflicts. In, in my opinion, the Department of Transportation has been pushing this concept of having risk-based assessments to determine what they should delegate to the comp- to the aircraft company to run internally. I don't even know if that's a thing. I, I, I keep reading about this risk-based assessment thing, uh, risk-based assessment for determining for the FAA to determine what aspects of the airplane to let the company operate under so in this particular case would be boeing so you know they could have said to boeing hey we're going to let you deal with all the hydraulic regulations but we're going to keep all the flight test regulations and we're we the fa are going to be directly involved in that aspect of it well how the heck do you know what ones to pick when you start a program you just don't right there's no way to know that yeah. there's absolutely no way to know that so to be clairvoyant and think five years down the line you're going to have a problem you should have picked that off <laughs> How, how do you expect the FAA to do that? I, it's just not a thing, right? It's just, it's just not a thing. <laughs> Being, thinking, uh, it's just mind reading. It's, it's just, uh, you know, Monday, Monday, Monday morning quarterbacking on some level. Like, come on. The FAA engineers are are not any different than the rest of us. What makes them so have superpowers? They don't, right? Uh, it's up to all the engineers to put the thing together and to think through it and to make sure that the design is compliant and that, um, they're removing organizational barriers that would create bad conditions or accidents. That's what needs to happen. And uh, everybody's got to take some ownership of it, I think. Don't you think, Dan? Like, there's just there's no one who's directly culpable with these accidents. It doesn't seem like. There's a, any sort of accidents, a multivariable no. thing.
0: Yeah, there's, I mean, there's so many things at play. Yeah. You talk about so many hurdles to get things airworthy and certified and safe and so many hands on deck also applying the principle of charity where you can saying like no one's trying to you know have planes crash like no one wants that no and no one's you know like the pressure you can understand um but yeah it just seems really tough to pin down one one single thing right um so what, what do you feel like kind of summing this up what do you feel like the big takeaways are for someone
1: I think, first, that the system that the FAA has established, the organizational, the ODAs, are still valid. I, I think to kill that would just crush the aircraft industry because you would force the FAA to take on this huge burden, which there's no funding for. They can't do it. This mm-hmm. is not going to happen. So to, to even toss it out there is, is, um, is one, risky, and two, not realistic. I think there needs to be a system set up in place even with the ODAs. So I'll give you a good example. So if you have, if I'm working for an ODA as a unit member and I'm signing off on some lightning regulation and I have an internal problem with a manager or somebody that is telling me to do something I feel uncomfortable with. The way it's supposed to work is I'm supposed to be able to go inside that ODA and make a complaint. And there's a process in which I just, that's processed. So the FAA doesn't necessarily see all that up front. I still think that the delegates, I don't care who, if they're unit members, and, but in and particularly DERs, DERs should do have full authority to call their advisors and to talk about these particular instances. And I've i have done that. I don't lost track of the number of times I've talked to my advisor at the FAA and every engineer DER has an advisor, someone that directly that oversees them, but also is like a sounding board. That's what they're there for. There should be a sounding board for you use them as a sounding board. And I think DERs need to do that. I think I wish unit members would have that same sort of who are working on that ODA would have that same sort of person that they can reach out to that we could describe what's happening and get some feedback on it so that we don't feel like we're on an Island all the time. Because in that isolation, that's when you get to the kind of conspiracy theories and weird things start going on in your head because you don't have anybody to, to bounce ideas off of. Right. And you, you yeah. feel it's all this mm-hmm. obligation. At the same time, you get no one to talk to. And that's that's where the trouble lies. All
0: right, so we're going to switch gears here uh, and we're going to run through our engineering segment real quick. So today's topic, we're going to talk about Honeywell. Obviously, Alan, you have some experience with them. And they have recently uh, formed a dedicated business unit for uh, UAS and Urban Air Mobility and uh so two things we're going to touch on um one they have a new micro vapor cycle system Mm -hmm. which can be just 20 percent more efficient cooling system for electric vehicles where obviously every ounce of weight counts yeah there'll be 35 percent lighter oil-free and this one is uh slated to be on the aviation alice which is one of the uh i guess more prominent uh, potential you know uh, electric vertical takeoff and landing aircraft that are yeah, everyone's in the same hunt, right. right, to be first to market, essentially, <laughs> yes. to yeah. be the air taxi. Yeah. Um, so that uh, cooling system seems interesting. Mm-hmm. But what I really want your take on is the, they're, they're, so they're testing some autonomous landing technology. Basically, Honeywell's making sensors that will include cameras that will analyze visual markings on the ground. So you think of like a helipad with like a QR code, essentially, right. that... Their technology will pick up these QR codes or these QR codes and help it land by itself. So, what do you think of that?
1: Well, I think it's a good idea. You know, we're going to have to get there at some point because there seems to be a lot of push to remove pilots from these um, electric. Yeah, humans are the worst. Get
0: get them out of there. (laughs) Get them out of there, right? Get the robots. I don't don't know. I was watching Terminator the other day. Skynet. (laughs) Let's get Skynet just to pilot all of our stuff.
1: (laughs) Well, it's. I'm sure they're feeling the pressure from tesla in the sense that tesla's got almost fully functioning driving cars it'll stop at stop signs it'll stop at stoplights. right it's it, the technology there is unbelievable so it's not a huge leap to go from automotive technology self-driving cars to self-flying planes i think that's doable i i, yeah. I think the question is you know it's the old thing like um, you know you got Two people in the cockpit you make one of them pilot the other one a dog and what the dogs are to do is make sure that the pilot doesn't touch the controls right so it's that sort of that same sort of philosophy and and if you if we if you try to take the pilot out of the cockpit then i think it's just going to add a little more difficulty to the complexity of all the systems now you remember in a in a in a tesla vehicle they don't necessarily have to deal with weight all that much and then they do have to be with weight; it has to do with drag. But on an airplane, weight weight's a killer. So any more automated yeah. systems you put in, is going to add more weight. Do you really want that? Can one of the pa- quote unquote passengers be a pilot too, <laughs> and help cut down the complexity mm-hmm. of the systems? Maybe, maybe. But I do think you're going to see Honeywell's a big player in every part of aviation. Has been forever. They make power plants, make avionics, they make systems. They do all, they do all of it, right? And so it's not surprising that they're going to get up front on this and and being a leader and they have that just had the cash to be able to do some of these things. And they have the engineers to do it. So why not? I think good for them. Let's get some of these things done and get it figured out. I'd rather have sort of the well-seasoned engineers at Honeywell giving advice to these newer startup aircraft companies than the other way around. And hopefully the, the engineers at Honeywell can say, here's based on our year tens, you know, years and years and years of experience to say, hey, these are, these are ways to design the system. These are ways not to design the system and you need to think about these other things. So it does bring a little bit of heft to the marketplace, which I think is good.
0: Yeah. And that seems like exactly what they're doing because uh, Honeywell has announced that they're partnering with uh, Volocopter Jaunt Air Mobility, which we'll talk about in a subsequent episode because they have some really interesting uh, lower speed rotor technology. Um, and, uh, mm-hmm. Vertical Aerospace. Yeah. So let's, uh, shift gears into our last mm-hmm. segment here. So, v- Vertical Aerospace, their aircraft is called the Serif, Seraph, S E R A P H. And again, Honeywell partners with them. Right. They're helping them along. Uh, and this aircraft, it's, it's really interesting. It's, it's got a, it's got a cool look. It's black. So it's got a very carbon fibery feel. I think a lot of these are, are white. They got the iPod feel, right? Yeah. Um, but it says <laughs> it can carry, 250 kilograms, flies 80 kilometers per hour, which is not fast for a lot of these uh, EVTOLs. And uh, it also, this is something that's really interesting that to me makes no sense, but maybe it makes more sense to you. They claim that it can be customizable, meaning that they could make it larger or smaller, I guess, depending on what your order is. Is that possible? Is that a reasonable thing to do that you can get your aircraft You know, like a two-bedroom
1: instead of a one-bedroom, essentially? No, it doesn't make any sense at all, actually. Uh, (laughs) So, I'm not sure what they mean. Is it uh, sectional so they can add sections into it? That must
0: be what they're talking about. They don't. They don't elaborate, mm. but they just said it was. It's a customizable design where they could put floaties on the bottom for uh, water landings. Okay, but it's also customizable in the sense that the size of the cabin can change to accommodate more or less. To
1: accommodate people, Americans so, is that like they're that. Try, trying to hint at? <laughs> I hint mean, hint. we are.
0: We are fat. <laughs> a fat people now, yes, but. Yeah, I don't know if that means the shape of the cabin changes. It, it wasn't explained on their website, mm. but
1: that's, that's um, I mean, when
0: you talk about like certifying an aircraft, you can't have like three versions of this. They all have to be separately certified. Yeah, surely would It should be. How's There's all work?
1: kinds of things about the interiors of the aircraft that are certification items. So it, it wouldn't be all that easy to do. I, I <laughs> When you say the air, aircraft is black, that's one of the things I noticed because you make aircraft white because it's cooler. Uh, I mean, cooler Mm temperature-wise, not cooler look-wise, because it can control the temperature. One of the things about a lot of these um, eVTOL-type aircraft is that they got these big glass uh, cockpit things, and having flown in in Bonanzas and things that have sort of the glass up top, no wing on top, is that they're hot. (laughs) When you're out flying, the sun just beats right through those things, and the cabin gets so hot which is probably why honeywell is investing in some sort of cooling technology for the cabin that's lightweight because it's going to get hot uh, and it just it's beyond hot it's just flat and comfortable uh, so making the aircraft white is why they do that now I looked at this design a little bit there's a couple of things that and a lot of these small um aircraft vertical takeoff landing aircraft that just scare the bejesus out of me one is when you put the blades below or equal to body height, and you know Murphy has a strong influence, particularly on the in, on the on the beginning of an aircraft program. That something's going to go wrong. You're going to have some sort of flutter in a blade, and one of those blades is going to come off. And where is it likely to go? Right through the cabin. And if the blades are above head height, I think you have less chance of that. Uh, and I understand why they're doing it. There's a lot of reasons why you try to keep those those blades a little bit lower. Uh, but to me, it just opens up the possibility of just some real catastrophic uh, blade ejection damage that can really sink a company. All it takes is one bad accident like that, and it's over. So, I, you know, some of these designs seem to have thought through that, and they've moved away from the ducted uh, electric fan design to just be an open blade concept because there are issues with the ducted part of the of those ducted fans um, in transition, and some aerodynamic oddities about them that make them very difficult to manage. And so, having an open blade just easier to design, which makes sense to me. But you got to worry about some of the, the failure conditions. So, I, I'm I'm optimistic. Yeah. You know, I, you know, you just see some of these designs. It's like it's like watching. When you see 1920s uh, video of different aircraft, you're like, man, there's no way that aircraft is going to get off the ground. And, of course, it crashes and the wings fold. Um, <laughs> kind of starting to feel like that for some of these designs. The problem is that they can all play with carbon fiber and these really strong materials, and it won't come apart. So, some other, some other piece of it will. I, I just... Need to think, I, I really wish we could think about some of the overall concepts and how it looks to the eye and whether it, it seems like it's a safe design or not. I, that's that's a trouble I'm seeing with them,
0: yeah. I, I think that's valid. I mean, when you're talking about what could go wrong, because they always seem to, like you said, yeah, that's Murphy's Law, they always seem to find a way into And yeah, if that thing goes with the cabin, you got a couple decapitated people or just some serious injuries, so like, nah, I ain't. Mm. You know, what consumer wants that one now? Yeah, in the eVTOL market,
1: how many times have you heard there's no single point failures on the aircraft and the aircraft have burned to the ground while sitting in the hangar? That should not happen. If there's no single point failures, there's no way (laughs) that the aircraft burns to the ground in a hangar. And there's been multiple of those already. Uh, So I'm concerned that we haven't done some of our homework there and that we haven't thought about those single point failures or... Uh, going back to the undue, um, pressure that can be applied. It doesn't necessarily just apply to DERs. It applies to engineers in general, and maybe we're getting pushed to meet schedule, to get the aircraft off the ground, to demonstrate to the investors that they need, that the aircraft is viable. And so push, 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 push. So that's sometimes when corners can get cut and then you have a fire on the ground. Fire on the ground is a lot better than the fire in the air. I'll tell you that much. And, and, and over the history of aviation there's been a lot of really, really bad accidents. And we seem to have forgotten a lot of those because they've happened relatively long time ago. But we're kind of getting back into that little bit of uh, cowboy-ish design stuff on these, on these on some of these aircraft. Uh, the benefit of these aircraft being autonomous right now, I, one of the benefits is that they're not putting pilots in them. So if something were to go horribly wrong, you're not going to lose a life. But at some point they will. And... I'm just not certain we have enough expertise in some of these companies to, to put people in them. And, and I'm glad that Honeywell is getting involved and, and, you know, Airbus is getting involved directly in some of these companies and Boeing's involved in some of these companies. Because I do think they need a little bit of hand-holding on the advice of, here are the things we see that are going to fail. This has been our experience in aviation for 100 years hey guys let's 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 take a look at this stuff
0: yeah it's it's interesting that so many of the EVTOL uh, market all these different prototypes or I mean the one thing about vertical airspace is they're moving pretty fast I mean they mm-hmm. were established in 2016 they made a just an unmanned vehicle just to like test like hey can we get a, an aircraft off the ground right. they did that within a year and a half yep. and now this one is 18 months in and it's had its uh, its first test flight last year. So, they're moving quickly. I mean, some of these, you go to their website, these other companies, it's like coming to you on, in 2028. It's like, okay, mm-hmm. like that's very far in the future. Um, good luck with that. So, they're moving quick. And I think you're right. I mean, does that put more pressure on engineers to. Yeah, it does. And know, it particularly just move fast. Yeah, and, it does. Yeah. It
1: does. And, and they don't have re- a lot of regula- regulatory oversight right now. The regulations in EASA are just coming together now, and the FAA is saying they're going to issue. Essentially, um, use the existing certification base to create, or sort of use the existing rules to create a certification basis for these for these unique aircraft. So we're all playing with new stuff. I, I think part of it's marketing and trying to drive uh, investment. So if it looks cool, looks different, it stands out in the marketplace. If it works, it's a do- mm-hmm. totally different manner. Every aircraft program, I don't care what aircraft program you name the the ability to sell that design to investors is the key right and uh even internally to to like a boeing or or some of the other business jet companies, you know, the decisions to make a business jet are if you'd actually sit on those decisions, you you would just shake your head and think this is this is not the real world. Right. We're, we're not talking about the same thing here. We're talking about bi- in investing a half a billion dollars and maybe never get it back or a billion dollars or more, depending on the size of the airplane and never get it back. And we're going to do that on what? What's the what's the new Driver is going to make this possible. We're going to save on the design time and get to flight time, and we're going to be able to make, you know, 20% more profit on every airplane. Those those things rarely, rarely, rarely happen, but they seem to be discussed a lot of times in these boardrooms. You're like, I can't believe we're saying this stuff because I think in all aircraft design, there is a, a, a modicum of there's always some level of we're going to conquer the world. And I get that. That's totally right. But at some point, you got to pay the bills, too. And you really need to be careful with the money that you have under your stewardship. And if if you make a lot of uh, advanced design decisions, that equals dollars. And it also may equal less safe because they haven't been proven. So I get the whole concept of trying to build the coolest, neatest thing. But at the same time... Are we, is it going to be as safe or is it going to be safe enough? And do we know enough about the technology that we're going to put in the aircraft?
0: That'll do it for today's episode of struck. If you're new to the show, thank you so much for listening and please leave a review and subscribe on iTunes, Spotify, or wherever you listen to podcasts. Check out the weather guard, lightning tech, YouTube channel for video episodes, full interviews and short clips from the show. And follow us on LinkedIn, Twitter, Instagram, and Facebook. Our handle is at WG lightning. Tune in next Tuesday for another great episode on aviation, aerospace engineering, and lightning protection. Strike Tape, WeatherGuard Lightning Tech's proprietary lightning protection for radomes, provides unmatched durability for years to come. If you need help with your radome lightning protection, reach out to us at WeatherGuardAero.com. That's weatherguard WeatherGuardAero.com.